Aqua lads and aqua lasses, Aquatober continues with the latest edition of Reading Canebow. It's time for Chapter 4. For those of you keeping track, in our last episode, Glenn Calloway, still in the hospital. Social worker Melissa Vick introduced Glenn to her young daughter, Katie, and they hit it off quite well. But in the end, Officer Dominguez from the Marfa Police Department came to ask Glenn a few questions about the bodies discovered in the basement of the funeral parlor. Also, for some reason, Officer Dominguez sounds like Jim Ross. Maybe I don't have enough impressions in my back pocket, but I'm sticking with it. And thus begins Chapter 4. Glenn listened in stunned silence as the policeman explained what they'd found. It was a little complicated for him to follow. Something about the chemical signatures of the different preservatives they used at the funeral home, the pattern of how the fire spread, what they'd found at the point of ignition. But it was the last thing, the simplest thing of all, which Dominguez said they'd only realized this week that made Glenn sit up straight. You know, it sounds like Batman's been investigating this fire, by the way, with all this detail. Glenn sit up straight and made a chill run down his spine, just like, how did his mom always put it? Just like, just like somebody walked on his grave, King. The front door was wide open, Dominguez said. Uh, we missed that the first time. He glanced back at Melissa as he spoke. Damn, she's easily got to be a full C, he thought to himself, making sure she got the significance of what he was saying, too. Uh, you see, the fire was so big, so far along by the time the engines arrived, they spent their energies fighting the blaze, you understand, and not writing down what they saw. That they did later. I don't understand, Melissa said. What does all this mean? Dominguez smiled again. Uh, excuse me if I'm not being clear. It means that the fact that the front door was wide open when the first engine arrived was hidden deep in the report. The front door being open is significant? Yes, very. The fire started between 1.15 and 1.30 in the a.m., most people don't leave their front door standing open at a time of night, do they? No, they don't, Melissa agreed. Except I did one time. I was waiting for a gentleman's suitor. You see, at the time, I was quite randy. Ah, uh, no, 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 uh, Miss, Miss, uh, Miss Vic, uh, i got to continue with the interrogation. So this is very significant, Dominguez looked at Glenn. I have a feeling you understand. Glenn did. He'd been sitting there listening to the policeman talk, and at the same time, he wondered why he didn't have a lawyer present or perhaps some sort of legal guardian that could speak on his behalf. But then again, this was Texas. He then flashed back in his mind to the very last images he had of the night his house burned down and his family died, remembering the wide-open front door and wondering how it got that way. Now, he finally knew. Somebody set the fire, he said. And then they walked out of the house and left the front door open. Exactly, Dominguez smiled. And now we have to find out who that somebody was. That was right. Glenn knew. They had to find out. And then he had to... Had to what? What was he supposed to do when he found out who killed his family? Choke slam him into oblivion? Excuse me, did you say something? Glenn looked up and saw that Dominguez and Melissa Vick and Katie were all staring at him. He must have spoken out loud. No, I didn't say anything. Okay. 
The policeman took his notepad out again and flipped it open to a fresh page. Uh, Glenn, now I'm going to need to sketch you nude. It's something that we're doing now here in the Marfa Police Office. Uh, please remove that gown uh, full uh, polka dots so I can see your entire visage. Uh, ladies, you may not want to be present for this, but to tell you the truth, I'd find it more erotically charged if you stayed. Glenn, off with the polka dots. And then I've also got some more questions for you, Glenn. Dominguez was there for almost an hour, asking Glenn and sketching Glenn about what he saw that night, what he heard, before he went to sleep and after, what he'd done that day, what his parents and brother had done, how many times he'd pleasured himself. Dominguez wanted it all. What he knew about his parents' business also, a point the policeman kept coming back to over and over again, hammering on it far longer than Melissa thought necessary, again, because legal counsel was not present. Uh, did you see anybody that looked suspicious to you around the funeral parlor for the last few days? What do you mean? It's a goddamn funeral parlor, Dominguez. Everybody's fucking weird. My brother Mark is always walking around like, Glenn, I cannot rest in peace. And then there's that fat man who's always like, Glenn, oh, Glenn, look at your tum-tum. You're getting so big, Glenn. But what do you mean, Dominguez? Well, somebody who seemed out of place. Maybe like someone that didn't belong. No. What about your daddy? Did he seem upset about anything recently? No. I mean, he was a drunk, though, so he was always kind of pissed off. Hmm. Anybody he was fighting with? Anybody mad at him or anything? Not that I can remember. Okay, Dominguez nodded, wrote something on his notepad. Glenn, do you know a man named Paul Grimm? Bum, bum, bum! Yeah, I know him. He works at the funeral parlor. You seen him around lately? Glenn looked like he wanted to say yes, but after a second's hesitation, he shook his head. No, I haven't seen him. But I don't know if he could have set the fire, if that's what you're thinking. Why not? Because he's a weasel. What? I'm not a weasel, Monsoon. What's that? Glenn, speak up! I can't hear you! I can't hear you! Because he's a weasel, he wouldn't have the guts, Glenn said. Melissa smiled at that. Weasel was just the word for Paul Grimm, based on what she'd heard about the man from Beverly Cutler. But that was the only time she smiled during the entire time Dominguez was there. It was practically the only time she smiled all morning, in fact. The policeman's sudden appearance at the hospital had not only ruined her plan with Katie and Glenn, it had thrown off her whole morning schedule and to tell you the truth, she still wasn't on board for this nude sketching. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I guess she went on with her life. Uh, after the sergeant left, though, she barely had time to say goodbye to Glenn herself before having to rush home to drop Katie off before her next appointment. Glenn's morning had been ruined, too. She could see it in his face. He'd closed right back up after his talk with Katie, having to answer all those questions, basically relive the night of the fire all over again. Not that Dominguez felt good about having asked those questions himself. Judging from the occasional unguarded look of frustration Melissa had seen on his face, he was in a tough spot. The sergeant was having to deal with a kid like Glenn, where he had to tread so, so carefully and try not to bruise any feelings. Again, probably easier with legal counsel present. Not the usual kind of interrogating police did, as Melissa knew all too well from the occasional shop talk Jarvis brought home. Though his shop, Jarvis was a highway patrolman... <laughs> What a nerd. Was a little bit different. And wasn't life funny that way? How it brought the two of them together. 
They had opposite views on so many things. Well, it's just become a Melissa story now, folks. And yet they could talk those through so easily without fighting. Usually, at least. Well, it was a wonder to her. Like last night at the dinner table. She was talking about a man named Wendell Newton. She worked up with an Alpine, an ex-con who was having a hard go of it lately. Some health problems. And Jarvis listened sympathetically. But at the end, pointed out that a lot of Wendell's troubles he brought on himself living the way he had for so long. Which Melissa couldn't deny. But still she felt it was not just her job, but her Christian duty <clears throat> nerd, to help those in need. Like Wendell. Like Glenn. They were all God's children. <clears throat> and there was certainly nothing that Glenn had done to bring on what happened to him. It was all just bad luck. She had to see what Jarvis thought about Glenn. Perhaps he could be the third in their much-wanted triumvirate. Maybe, in fact, she could arrange to take Glenn out for a meal with the whole family. <laughs> well, make sure you get one of those fucking things to cover his face. Do him some good to get out of the hospital and out into the real world. She talked to the boy before about maybe coming to church with them on Sunday, but that suggestion had obviously made him very, very uncomfortable. And honestly, Katie, Vic's mom, kind of inappropriate. But this is Texas. Dinner would be much better. Katie would like that too. They hadn't gone out to dinner in a good long while. She glanced at her daughter in the rearview mirror and smiled. You made me proud today, honey, back in the hospital, the way you got Glenn talking. Yes, mama, her daughter said, distracted by the game she was playing with her dolls. It was a game of sixes and nines, Ken and Barbie having the times of their lives. You have a knack for making people feel comfortable. A knack? Well, a talent, I mean. You'd make a good social worker. Like you? That's right, honey, like me. I don't know. I think I might want to be a policeman like Daddy when I grow up. Well, that's all right, too. Whatever you want. You've got plenty of time to decide. Melissa turned into the driveway and turned off the car. Now listen, honey, she said as she let herself and Katie into the house. I've got to run back to the office for a few minutes. Will you be okay here by yourself until Daddy gets home? Or do you want me to call Mrs. Colonel Sanders down the road? Oh, I want Mrs. Colonel Sanders! She smells like chicken! And she tastes delicious. Mmm... Can we see if Jenny's home, though, Mama? If she can play? Jenny's in school now, honey. Oh. Melissa knelt down and touched a hand to her daughter's cheek. I'm sorry, honey. We're just very, very weirdly religious. But you'll be in a real school next year, though. In the meantime... Her voice trailed off as she heard a car pull up in the driveway. She frowned. Who could be coming to see her now? She wasn't usually home now. She was usually at work. And besides, the tricks that she turned in private were supposed to be that. In private. How dare one of these Johns show up at her house? She went to the window to see which some bitch it was. I can't wait for school next year, Mama. That boy Glenn is going to be in my class. That's nice, Melissa said absently, not really listening to Katie. Great parenting, Melissa. At the moment, because she just reached the window and saw that the car that pulled up was Jarvis's state trooper vehicle. And what was he doing home at this hour? He had the 7-3 to three shift all week. What was on his mind? She smiled all at once because she suddenly realized that Jarvis knew she was planning on being home about now. And that, what might be on his mind, was in fact her. Oh, yeah, that man. She turned her head slightly to the right, to the family portrait hanging on the wall. Katie in the front, 
smiling her thousand-watt smile, and Melissa kneeling down to her in a strange prayer configuration, and Jarvis standing behind them, his hand on Melissa's shoulder. Seriously, what is wrong with these people? That sounds like the most horrendous, off-putting family portrait of all time. Which was when Jarvis got out of the car and her heart stopped. Because it wasn't Jarvis. It was Jarvis's captain, Tony Stark. No, okay, it was Roy Egger. And it was the captain's car, not Jarvis's. It had different markings on it. And climbing out of the passenger side was Jarvis's best friend on the force, Stan Halverson. Both men wore long, long faces. Perhaps that threesome she'd longed for would not involve her husband. And that was okay, because she was a swinging hip lady underneath a Christian facade. Captain Egger put a hand on Halverson's shoulder, and Stan wiped a tear away from his eye. With a tear in my eye, Melissa Vick, I think your husband's dead. Woo! Melissa clutched her hand to her chest, massaged her nipple. She did feel like a full sea, she thought to herself, but sat down on the couch. Katie walked up beside her and stood on her tiptoes to peer out the window. Is it daddy, mama? Is daddy home already? Melissa finally found her voice. It cracked as she spoke. No, honey, it's not daddy. She had a horrible feeling in her stomach that it was never, ever going to be daddy again. No one came to see him the next day. Not the blonde woman, not her daughter, either. Katie. Glenn was going to ask one of the nurses what happened to them, but he had Nurse Ephraim all day, and she was in a foul, foul mood. Something about her boyfriend stepping out on her, he guessed from little bits of conversation he overheard taking place outside in the hall. She barely looked at him all day long. Glenn didn't worry about it too much. He'd see Melissa tomorrow. That was their day. And in the meantime, well, he had a lot to think about. The number one on his mind was the fire. From the policeman's questions yesterday, it sounded like they were trying to figure out who might have had keys to the house besides his parents. Glenn couldn't think of anybody except old Mr. Blackwell, who sometimes helped around the parlor doing odd jobs, and they pretty much ruled him out as a suspect. He was kind of an idiot. To tell you the truth, it reminded Glenn of Ernest P. Whirl. Mr. Blackwell wasn't always getting into the same types of shenanigans as Ernest P. Whirl, but he had seen Mr. Blackwell become a living magnet. He had seen Mr. Blackwell shoot lightning. And he knew that Mr. Blackwell had been to camp and jail a few times. Glenn had been thinking hard on other possibilities since the officer left. But he just couldn't. Who would want to burn down the funeral parlor? Jake the Snake Roberts? No. The ultimate warrior? Eh, maybe. But why? There just wasn't any reason. So Glenn had decided that the police were wrong. It was an accident. Although he knew it was not really an accident at all, it was the curse. He'd also decided he was going to have to tell Melissa about the Kane family curse. And I'm sure Melissa would take you very seriously, Glenn. Maybe keep that one in the old back pocket, okay? We're not trying to get committed here. And he thought that she just might believe him because one of the things he'd realized about her was that she was a God-fearing woman, as Dad always used to say. She was always talking about the Lord this and the Lord that. And no, I didn't add that, folks. It's in the book. And a few days ago, she'd even suggested that Glenn might want to come to church with her on Sunday just to get out of the hospital. Glenn had been trying to figure out how to tell her he never went to church. 
None of the Callaways, and certainly none of the Canes, ever went to church. But luckily, she dropped that topic of conversation pretty quickly as she realized it was an unconstitutional proposition. The point was, though, that she was a God-fearing woman and a full C. She believed in the higher powers up above. As do I, Austin. As do I. Which meant that she'd be just as likely to believe in the ones down below. <laughs> Which was where it got tricky. Because although Melissa was likely to believe in the curse, if Glenn told her that he was a witch, he was afraid she wouldn't talk to him anymore. Glenn, I actually walk around with the same fear every day, so allow me to tell the world, I am a witch. Deal with it. I feel so much better. And she definitely wouldn't want him and Katie to be friends. She'd probably think the evil would rub off on Katie, as Donald Pleasance might say. Maybe he could change the story just a little bit. Just tell her about the curse without telling her why the Canes were cursed. After all, she would just have his word for it. The scrapbook was gone now, burned in the fire. Which meant that since he was the last surviving Kane, all those stories were going to die with him. Which was good. Of course, Glenn didn't realize he would soon have a demon seed with Lita. What was better was that that night, Glenn didn't dream about the fire. Instead, he dreamed about being back at school in Mrs. Prescott's class and everyone was being nice to him. Jimmy Nichols wanted to know if he wanted to go to the football game on Friday night and watch Marfa High beat up on Valentine. Greg the Hammer, that is. Ty Martin came over to his desk and started telling him about the wrestling show he'd gone to last week up in El Paso. And did Glenn want to come see a show with him and his family next month? They were all calling him Glenn in the dream. And the whole time everyone was talking to him, he was aware that sitting in the seat to his right, not talking to him, but just watching him, was Katie Vick. You see, folks, Katie liked to watch. And that's okay. And that even though he couldn't see her, she was smiling. In the dream, he was smiling too. Well, Glenn, in my dream, the bats carried me to the light. A beautiful lie. He even woke up with a smile on his face for the first time in what seemed like forever, and was still wearing that smile at 8.45 a.m., when just like always, Melissa knocked on the door to his, to his room. Glenn tidied up his shirt, fixed his tie, checked his breath, fixed his hair, and said, <clears throat> Come on in, Melissa. The door swung all the way open, but instead of Melissa, it was a man! Strangely, though, Glenn noticed his erection did not dissipate. And that's okay, Glenn. You be you. It was a short, very neat, very blonde-haired man who was always smiling. Why? Glenn couldn't imagine. Hey there, Glenn! How you doing? Woo! Glenn frowned and stared. Who was this guy? The man's smile wavered. It is Glenn, right? He looked down at the folder in his hand and nodded. Yeah, of course it is. How you doing, Glenn? Woo! The man stepped into the room, set his folder down on one chair, and pulled another upside the bed. He was wearing some kind of perfume or cologne or something. It stunk to high heaven. Glenn, I'm Dick Beaveth. I'm going to be your new case worker. Woo! Glenn wasn't sure he'd heard right. My new what? Your new case, case worker, boy. Going to work on your case. I mean, going to help you find a new home, new place to live. How's that sound, Glenn? Woo! What? 
A new place to live. A new family. But first... The man put his hand on the bed, then leaned even closer. We ought to get to know each other, don't you think? How about a trip to Space Mountain? Woo! I could tell. I could tell you a little bit about myself. I'm kind of new to social work thing, but I've done a lot of work with people in the real estate business. And that's the same sort of communication skill facilitating. Woo! Wait, wait! Glenn shook his head. He had a sudden sinking feeling in his stomach. My new caseworker? Where's Melissa? What happened to her? Melissa, the blonde man smiled and nodded. Melissa, Melissa. Well, I've been with a Melissa. I've been with a Sandy. I've been with a Fifi. I've been with a Beth. Woo! I just don't know if I've been with a Melissa. All at once, though, the fake smile disappeared from Dick Beavis's face, replaced by a frown that was just as fake. Oh, a terrible thing happened, son. A terrible thing. And Melissa's not going to be coming back, I'm afraid. The man shifted in his chair, obviously uncomfortable. Sorry, Glenn. Let me fix my giant cock. Oh, there it is. That's better. I'm sorry. What happened? For some reason, Glenn felt himself on the verge of tears. Tell me what happened. Hold on, hold on. Let me just check. Let me just check here in my backpack. You know, Glenn, whoo, I got a lot of stuff. I got a 16 championship belts in here. I've got all sorts of boner pills. Oh, here we go, Glenn. Whoo, I got a note right for ya. The man reached over and grabbed his folder again and pulled out a plain white envelope with Glenn's name scrawled on the front. Glenn ripped it open and read, <coughs> Dear Glenn, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this in a letter, but I am glad that you're able to hear my English-accented voice in your head. But there's so much going on right now, I can't make it out to see you. I will try and call when things calm down a little, and whoever is taking my place has probably told you by now there has been a terrible tragedy in my family, something that makes me understand just a little bit better, I think, how awful you must have been feeling these last few months. To lose a member of your family is without a doubt the greatest trial God puts before us. Glenn felt dizzy. The words started to blur. Was she talking about Katie? Had something happened to Katie? Oh, not yet, Glenn. Just give it a few chapters. He was scared to read on, but finally he did. And when he found out that the person in Melissa's family who died wasn't Katie, but Melissa's husband instead, he felt first relief. And then he got an idea. Hmm, if she's single, who's going to play with those full C's? Hmm. But then he felt shame for feeling that relief. Her husband was dead. He was a state trooper. <clears throat> Nerd which Glenn hadn't known, and he'd been in a high-speed chase out on the highway, and his car had gone off a bridge. And that was how he died, Melissa said. A freak accident. Well, no, a freak accident is like you electrocute yourself plugging in the goddamn toaster. Okay? Driving off a bridge is not a freak accident. It's an accident. But Glenn knew it wasn't an accident at all. Of course he did, Glenn. It was his fault for making friends with Katie, with her mom, for making them a part of his life. It was... The curse. But as difficult as it seems sometimes, we have to have faith in God and his plan for us all. I have faith in his plan for you, and I know that plan will end with your happiness. I will write you once we are settled in Kansas City. I miss you already, Glenn, and I will pray for you, and I wish you all the best in the world. Love, Melissa Vick. P.S. Enclosed is a picture of my full sea breasts for you to use as you age. 
Hell of a thing, isn't it, Slugger? Woo! Glenn was crying. No! 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 There was a little pink piece of paper folded up inside Melissa's note. It was the picture of her bosoms. He felt better, but then he opened up the little letter that was attached to it and found it was a note from Katie. A very short note. Dear Glenn, my dad died, so I'm moving to Kansas City. It looks like we will not be in second grade together after all. We could be pen pals, though, my mom says. Here is the address you can write me at. Your friend, Katie Vick. The note made him cry even more. At some point during his crying, he realized that Dick Beavis had sat up on the bed next to him. He patted Glenn on the leg. It's all right, Beavis said. It's going to be okay. Woo! No, it's not going to be okay. Glenn said, wondering just how stupid this man was, because how in the world could it be okay that Melissa's husband, Katie's dad, was dead? And it was his fault. It's a terrible thing that happened, Beavis said, but go away! Glenn turned his back to Beavis, but the bed was small, and when he did that, he jostled the man, and Beavis, who was perched awkwardly on the edge of the mattress, slipped and fell on the floor. On the way down, one of his arms hit the little cart that held Glenn's breakfast tray. The tray slid off the cart and bounced off Beavis's head. Glenn's breakfast spilled all over the man's suit. Beavis got up cursing, and for some strange and strange reason, his face was a crimson mask. God damn it! He wiped egg and orange juice off of his suit, and he glared at Glenn. I was just trying to help! I don't want your help! Beavis's eyes narrowed. Yeah, I got that. Listen, kid, anyone ever tell you you got a bad attitude? Woo! I don't care. Way out too. Not many families gonna want a kid with a bad attitude. And I would know because I'm a 16-time heavyweight champion of the world. Damn, I didn't mean that, Glenn. I just, I just, look at my suit. Woo! Who's gonna climb on me now to head to Space Mountain? Glenn made a show of turning away again. Leave me alone! He heard Beavis sigh once more. Look, we got off to a bad start here. Let's start over. Okay, woo! Glenn didn't respond. After a minute, he heard Beavis pick up his folder and slide the chairs back where they were. I'll leave your letter, Glenn, and I'll be back tomorrow. No, Thursday. I'll be back Thursday. Woo! Glenn heard the man's footsteps trail away and the door open and close behind him. He was alone again. Dick Beavis never came back. Aww. They gave him another caseworker, Mrs. Rodriguez, who seemed nice enough but rarely spent more than 15 minutes at a time with him, which she kept apologizing for. The size of my caseload! By which Glenn guessed meant she had a lot of other people to see. That was fine with him. He was actually grateful for the lack of attention. A week or so after she started, she brought him a, bag, a big manila envelope postmarked Kansas City. Don't you want to open it? She asked. Excuse me! You should probably open this! Excuse me! Glenn held the envelope, which was stuffed full of what he had no idea, and thought, I don't want to open it, but I kind of do. But it was from the Vicks, and they were better off without him in their lives. I'll open it later, he said, and put the envelope to the side. After Mrs. Rodriguez left, he got out of bed, walked down the hall to the trash chute, and threw the envelope away. What a dick move, Glenn. Over the next few weeks, he threw a lot of envelopes from Kansas City away. Three months later, after being released from the hospital, Mrs. Rodriguez put him in a temporary foster home in Alpine with six other kids. Glenn shared the secret of Shazam with these six other kids, and they went on to defend the DC Universe from lots of perils. 
However, though, that adventure ended, and he was just back in the same temporary foster home. He started second grade there all over again. The Vicks mail followed him. Mrs. Rodriguez sent a note along with it, telling him he was rude not to reply. One day, when he got home from school, she was on the front steps of the home waiting for him. I don't want to talk to them, all right? They got their lives, and I got mine. Mrs. Rodriguez looked confused. Excuse me! The Vicks, Glenn said. I don't want to talk to them. Oh, she shook her head. That's not why I'm here, Glenn. And then, for the first time since he'd met her, Mrs. Rodriguez smiled. Glenn suddenly realized that his suitcase, the one the hospital had given him when he left, was sitting on the steps next to her. We got a family for you! And thus ends chapter four. Wow! Folks, the Kane family curse. Could it be real? Will Glenn ever receive back the powers of Shazam from his six foster siblings? Will Dick Beavis return? Will the author of the story ever be embarrassed for creating a character named Dick Beavis? Well, you're just going to have to keep tuning in to each new episode of Reading Kane Bow. So subscribe to the Aqua Cave podcast feed, especially here during the creepy season of Aquatober. I'm Johnny C, and a winner is you. Oh,